jump right in, and we are going to jump right in. We're going to be looking uh, today um, at, at, what is this? What are we in? Nehemiah. There we go. Good. Nehemiah 11 and a part of 12. And so let me just kind of forewarn you again, there is a great litany, yet one more time, of names here in 11 and part of 12. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing. I am going to read some of the names, uh, simply A, because it's just who I am, and B, uh, because I want us to still get the feel, to know the feel of what it is to read off name after name after name. And so we will do that now, and we will begin with verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in the holy city Jerusalem, while nine-tenths remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all those who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And these are the leaders of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah all lived on their property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived some of the Judahites and of the Benjaminites of the Judahites. Athiah, son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephtiah, son of Mahalel, of the descendants of Perez and Messiah, son of Baruch, son of Kol Jose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joyreb. Sure. Son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite, all the descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant warriors. And these are the Benjaminites. And then it goes on and 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 on through the first 21 verses of chapter 12. And then we pick up verse 22. As for the Levites, in the day of Eliashib, Joida, Johanan, and Jadua, there were recorded in the heads of ancestral houses also the priests until the reign of Darius the Persian. The Levites, head of ancestral houses, were recorded in the book of the annals until the days of Johanan, son of Eliashib, and the leaders of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Yeshua, son of Kadmiel, with their associates over against them to praise and to give thanks, according to the commandment of David, the man of God, Select or section opposite to section. Got it. Mattathiah, Babukiah, Abadiah, Meshulam, Talmud, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouse of the gates. And these were in the days of Joachim, son of Yeshua, son of Josadak, and in the days of the governor Nehemiah and of the priest Ezra the scribe. Yes, sisters and brothers. Even this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we give you praise for the reality that we know that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so we pray that you would breathe life into us, even in the most unsuspecting of places. That we, Lord, might be challenged, encouraged, that we might grow in you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So, sisters and brothers, we are nearing the end 
of our look at Nehemiah. Next week, we will kind of finish off, and um, there is a whole other 13th chapter, but we will, we'll be ending next week just with the end of chapter 12. It's kind of the, re- it's the dedication of the, of the wall, so it's a, it seems like a good place for us to end because the following Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, if you can believe it, December 1st. So we are coming to an end here. And you know, before I started this series, uh, I, I do this from time to time when I'm looking at a book. If we're going to begin a book series, I oftentimes go on the web um, um, in, in order to see what the best sermons are to download. You know, those sorts of things. And so, but I oftentimes, I, what I really want to look at is how did previous preachers, how do they kind of divide up the book? And, and I was surprised because I noticed that most preachers seemed to end at chapter 10. They didn't finish it out. And then I read this chapter and I thought, oh, this is beginning to make more sense. Why you would not necessarily include the end of Nehemiah. Truth be told, it's kind of hard to find a lot of meat in just a litany of names. And of course, this isn't the first time that we've been met with the litany of names, which then caused me to think, of course, well, a part of the reason why it's in there perhaps is to reiterate yet again what Nehemiah wants us to know. It's kind of the classic uh, uh, a ploy, and it's a good one, a tool that good teachers use, which is to tell you something once, and then to tell it to you again, and then again, and then again, and then again. And why is that so helpful? Because we forget we do not easily remember things. This past week, we uh, were looking at our, uh, one of our questions for our home groups was this, which is, as you look back over the whole book of Nehemiah that we've been studying, what's one thing that stood out to you? And I love asking that question, especially as a preacher, because whenever you ask that question, people get really nervous because they feel guilty, because mostly what they can remember, if they can even remember that, is what we talked about just a few days earlier. Nonetheless, to go all the way back to what we talked about the second or third or fourth Sunday of this, right? And so they feel bad because they're like, oh man, Jerry's going to think that you know we don't remember anything, and that's totally true. And so so, so, so there's always this kind of sense. Now, i got to say, on my Thursday morning home group, they did a really nice job, and a few of them even remember things that we talked about early on. But it was this reminder to me again of the importance of our kind of thinking through things again and again. And so what I've thought what we're going to do today, we're going to do a couple things, but the main thing is that we're going to look at what are some of the main themes. We've got seven of them because it's the perfect number. And so seven main themes that we've been looking at over the last uh, 10 weeks or so. Now this is the 11th week, and we will then kind of touch on uh, chapter 11. I could not come up with, with 45 minutes to an hour of a sermon on chapter 11, and I know that that's what you wanted, right? Thank you for there being at least one or two uh, liars. Good. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look over. We're going to remember what is it? What are some of the key things that we have been learning during our series? And the first one on a macro level is this, which is the importance of the Old Testament. I started out from the very beginning, week one of this. We said a part of what we want to do is to be reminded of just how important the Old Testament is. Remember one commentator said it's like the Wawona syndrome. Do you remember me talking about that? The Wawona tree. Uh, you can see a picture of the tree right there. It was that massive tree, right? That you could drive through. It was in Yosemite. And all of a sudden, because of some adverse um, 
weather conditions, this happened. Remember the whole thing fell and what they discovered is that even though the tree was big and strong, that all it took was some bad weather and they realized that the root system was incredibly shallow. And so the whole thing then began to fall. And Christopher Wright has asked the question of whether or not we as Christians really understand the Old Testament. Do we understand the whole story, not just the New Testament? And so my prayer is that as we have been going through this book, and I know that for some of you, I've I've already heard it, that this is true, which is great, which is a deeper appreciation for the Old Testament. Because if you want to understand Jesus, remember the New Testament had not been written when Jesus was on the earth. Do we, do we know that? It makes sense, but I think we oftentimes forget that. Jesus was shaped and formed, of course, much by, by, what he, by, by the Old Testament he was bringing up. He was always alluding to the Old Testament. So if our faith is to be profound, is to be, is to be deep, then we need to know the Old Testament. So one of the things then that we need to understand is the importance of the Old Testament. Now the second thing that I want us to remember and we talked about this a lot at the beginning, was what godly leadership looked like. Now, Nehemiah, as you remember, what was his job? He was a cupbearer. Now, we think of a cupbearer as not being all that great of a job, but remember, that meant that he had a lot of power, actually, because, A, I mean, he was, he was not just the one who was just kind of drinking to make sure that the cup wasn't uh, poisonous. He was then someone who the king... Always trusted, right? You have to trust the cupbearer. And so he was somebody who we trusted. And, and traditionally, the cupbearer has had a great influence on kings. And what's remarkable, of course, is that as an exile, as a foreigner, he had worked his way up the royal ladder, right? This was not easily done. And so he was trustworthy. He had a lot of power. He had some great leadership that got him to where he was. And and so we wanted to say, well, what are some characteristics of godly leadership? One of those is that he was a man of prayer. Now, typically when we say something about prayer, you think, okay, that's great. That means that he opened every meeting with a quick prayer, you know, but this is much more than that. From the very first chapter and throughout the book, as you may recall, prayer, he was steeped in prayer, which is this sign of his dependence on God, that he knew that he was not God. This is really important for leaders. A lot of leaders forget that they are not God. And so he knew that. See, a man or a woman of prayer is almost always going to be somebody who evokes humility. Because it is a person who knows that. And from a government to businesses to churches... Because pastors struggle with this as well, to be sure. We have to be people of humility. And not just humility, but a people who also can admit, godly leadership are also people who can admit that they are flawed, that they do not always get it right. Remember the very first chapter, but he does this two or three times later as well, which is this. He admits his own sin, Nehemiah does. He admits the fact that he doesn't always get it right. A couple years ago, I shared with you all something that uh, um, someone told me, which is that his boss used to always say, I reserve the right to become smarter. I reserve the right to become smarter. Which is this sense of saying, we're making this decision now, but I realize it may not be the right decision. And so I reserve the right at some point to say, hey, that was wrong. We should have probably done this. 
And so one of the great markers that I think marks godly leadership versus just leadership as a whole is the sense of humility and a sense of being able to be honest about the fact that we might be wrong. But of course, godly leadership also has a sense of being able to do or being able to cast God-sized vision. This is one of the things that we talked about with Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that he had been given a vision by God, and this was no small vision. You see, what a vision from God does is it doesn't just focus on what is. It says this is what can be, and this is what should be. And a God-sized vision, make no mistake, is always going to make you and others uncomfortable. See, it's much easier to just stay within your own vision. Remember where Nehemiah was. What city was was he in? Anyone remember? It's okay. That wasn't Babylon. It was Susa. He was in the city of Susa, right? And Susa was like the San Diego, right, of the Persian Empire. In the wintertime, this is where the kings were. It was luxurious. He had all this power, Nehemiah did. I mean, things were perfect. They were wonderful. And then he gets this God-sized vision, and he has to get off the couch. He has to get away from what is comfortable in order to go to some city that is in ruins, You see, a God-sized vision is always going to make you uncomfortable. I think far too often we think about God-sized visions and we look at people who have had God-sized visions. And you know what we do? We look at the finished product. And we think, oh, that's amazing. That's wonderful. We should all do that. I mean, that is a beautiful thing. And it is an injustice because we don't take the time usually to go and to see what it took, the sacrifice, the pain, all that it took to actually get to that place. And that is critical for us to keep in mind. Because as I said repeatedly throughout this series, if you think that when you are given a God-sized vision that everything is going to go smooth, that there will be no problems, well, as soon as you meet any kind of resistance or adversity, you will stop because you will think this must not be from God. The reality is, quite frankly, if you never meet any resistance or if things are far too smooth, it's a much greater likelihood you have a man or woman-sized vision and not a God-sized vision. So one of the things then that we see here, I love it when it gets quiet. One of the things that we see here is that a God-sized vision requires courage, risk, and perseverance. Because make no mistake, Nehemiah met much resistance. In fact, uh, in the business world, John Cotter, you may know this, he says that you've never really seen your vision, the vision come to fruition or the change really occur until you have survived the sabotage. There is always going to be sabotage. Why? Because no matter how often we say we like change or, hey, we're, we're good with this, we want it, the reality is that most of us hate change. We are comfortable in Susa. But godly leadership will never allow us to just be comfortable. A God-sized vision is always going to push us beyond that. And sure enough, as we looked at the life of Nehemiah, we saw that he got a lot of resistance from people like Sanballat, you know, his enemies. But perhaps even more difficult, he got resistance from those within his community. Remember this? People like uh, the nobles of Tekoa who never showed up at the wall to help rebuild it. 
And if you're Nehemiah as the leader, I'm going to guess this is what you're doing. You're there and you see, if you've ever, if you've led much, which is most of us, you know what it's like. You see everyone who's there, but what are you focused on? Those who aren't there. And you can almost just see him looking off towards the area of Tekoa and just wondering, are the nobles ever going to come? And they never came. But what does Nehemiah do? He keeps going. Or what about the time when the people of Judah, I love this part, when the people of Judah, when they get tired, because here's the thing, when you are going after a God-sized vision, you will grow tired. Do you remember how the message, this was in chapter 4, here's what it says, but soon word was going around in Judah, the builders are pooped. The rubbish piles up, we're in over our heads, we can't build this wall. It's too much, Nehemiah. But what does Nehemiah do? He keeps going. He perseveres. He has an immense amount of patience. The truth is this. If you want to follow after a God-sized vision, then get ready to grow teary. I was going to say weary, but teary is probably also right. A Freudian slip. Get ready to have to persevere. Get ready to take risks. Get ready to have courage. Because again, if you don't, more than likely you're following after a man or woman-sized vision and not God's. Now here's the other thing that we learned about Nehemiah, which is that not only was he a great visionary, he also knew how to develop a plan. All of us, my guess is, know leaders who are very visionary and they know how to come up with great visions and they can come up with them left and right and yet they never seem to be able to understand how to make any of those visions actually come to fruition. But Nehemiah knew how to do this. Remember, he took four months from when he received that vision, four months until he actually decided to approach the king. And when he approached the king, he made sure that the queen was there, probably because she was going to be helpful. And even as he made the request, he kind of started small, and then he kept getting larger. And then he went, remember, he went and looked around at the, at the wall at night when there was nobody around because he didn't want a bunch of attention, but he wanted to kind of understand things. And then he waited until just the right time to say, here is the plan, right, Nehemiah? Nehemiah was remarkably brilliant. Remember what we said about Nehemiah? Maybe some of you remember this sermon, which was this fact that he had the Pentecostal faith. You have a God-sized vision. I'm not doing it again, but I'm just saying that. But he also knew how to plan like a Presbyterian. He was pragmatic as well. And see, godly leaders are going to have both of those. They're going to hold those intention as difficult as that is. So we see Nehemiah doing that in a remarkable way. Now, here is also the problem with why it is so difficult for God-sized visions to ever come to fruition. It isn't just because there are enemies on the outside. It isn't just because you will meet with resistance from your own community. It is because of this reality. That every plan, every process to roll out the plan, and every person who is trying to roll out the plan, every leader, every group, it is, they are always, always going to be imperfect. I want you to hear this again. Every plan, every rollout of a plan, 
Every person who's a part of the leadership of the plan. They are always going to be imperfect. Remember what happens here. Let's look. What's this fourth point here? Remember what happens here. This is one of my favorite parts. This is a part that I will always remember. If someone comes back to me and says, what do you remember about Nehemiah? This is what I'm going to tell them. It was great. On Thursday morning at my home group, somebody um, brought this up as a thing that, that he would remember as well. Here it is. It's, you remember that they're building the wall. Sanballat and Tobiah, two enemies, are mocking them, right? And they're, they're kind of making fun of them and basically saying, this is never going to happen. You stink. And, uh, you know, all of these sorts of things. Then Sanballat, um, 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 he says, uh, what does he say here? He says, where was I? There we are. He says, what are they going, what? Are they going to revive the stones out of heaps of burned rubbish? And then Tobiah, and this is my favorite, and I always, I don't know if I did this when we talked about it, but from, it always feels like it's in an English accent to me, uh, which he's like, oh, if a fox were to go on the wall, the whole thing would crumble. Do you remember that? I mean, just completely mocking them, saying, your wall is rubbish, and it is nothing but rubble. It's horrible. And remember how a little over a century or so ago, archaeologists dug up and they found Nehemiah's wall? I said this to you all, and I said, hey, you know, this happened. I said, what do you think, what do you think they said? And I think many of you were like, well, probably, that, hey, that wall is actually quite good, and it was built very strong, and great job. Those enemies, they were just trying to say things that weren't true. But what did the archaeologists discover? The wall was rubbish. I mean, it was just rubble. I mean, it was a horrible wall. It wasn't a great wall. But remember what Nehemiah said, right? Because there were like remnants of the wall. They were rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah was like, well, we can't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. And here's what we're going to do. Even though much of this rock is rubbish, and even though, quite frankly, many of my workers are rubbish, and even though I, as a leader, am probably somewhat rubbish, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make the most of this thing anyways, and we're going to cobble this thing together, and we're going to make this thing a wall, and we're going to keep working on this thing, and it's going to be as good as it can be because we are going to move forward. Here's one of the things that we said then, which is this. If you wait for the perfect plan or the perfect process or the perfect people, then you will never be about God-sized vision. You will be sitting around and waiting and poking holes in everybody else's vision, and nothing will ever get accomplished. You can mark my words, because if you wait for perfection, it will never come. Now, I went back and forth on whether to then say what I wanted to say next, and I only told two people that I was thinking about it because I didn't want anyone to tell me no. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Probably because I'm imperfect. I want to bring up at this juncture, and I want to be careful, I want to bring up the thoughts of the future property that we've been talking about, though from a very high level. The, my resistance, my only reason why I, I don't want to say anything is because I want to be very clear that we will discern together whether this is a God-sized vision or if this is just a vision of a few people. We will do that together. But it's such a great example that I want to use it anyways. And you can, if you want to picture any other kind of God-sized vision that you have, you can put it in there. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. 
the plan will not be perfect. The process of rolling things out, oh, it will be flawed. The leadership who is spearheading this, they're going to make mistakes. The pastor who is also helping to spearhead this, I know this is going to be a surprise. I am going to mess things up. And I think it's really important for you to know that because here's the thing. There's a ton of pressure. There's a ton of pressure to get everything perfect, to get it just right. And I can feel it, and I know you can feel it, and some of you are waiting around and saying, well, this thing better be perfect. The plan better be perfect, and the process better be perfect, and the person doing this better be perfect. And I'm here to say that if you are worried about whether or not these things are all going to go perfectly, let your worries rest. It will not. We're going to mess up because we are rubble. One of the greatest things I learned the very first year when I started working on my doctorate in leadership 28 years ago was this. That was a joke. But it feels like it's been that long. Was this. I think it's by Heifetz and Linsky who said it. Which is that leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can handle. Disappointment is, or or leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can absorb or they can handle. Why? Because here's the reality. If you are not just going to try to stick with the status quo, if you are going to try to bring change, and God's size vision is always going to try to bring some sort of change, then you're always going to disappoint people. You're going to disappoint some people because they like the way things are. There are always going to be people like that. And you're going to disappoint other people because when you're trying to bring change, you don't know. You're doing the best you can, but the reality is you're not going to do it perfectly. So you're always going to disappoint those folks as well. So if you've already been disappointed by me, then I've already in some sense done my job as a leader. It's not an excuse to not work hard. Please hear me. It's not an excuse to be lazy. It's not an excuse to say, oh, it's good enough. By no means, we are going for excellence. But we will not always get there. Please know that. But see, one of the great gifts about knowing that going into it is this. For me, at least, it means that I can actually learn. You see, if, if I think this thing has to be perfect, guess what? Every time somebody makes a suggestion to me or says, this should be done differently, I'm going to dig my heels in. Because I'm going to think, no, 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 this has to be perfect. It can't be. Nope, nope, nope. This is perfect. Nope, this is great. Nope, this is just right. No, no, no. And then you never learn. One of the greatest things that's happened during this process already and over the last six years is that people have come in and said, well, you know, with grace and love, if you don't come in with grace and love, I am probably not going to learn from you. Leadership is not going to learn from you. That's just the reality. But if you come in with grace and love, there is a great chance that we are going to learn from you. And that is a good place to be. But here's what I want you to know. This is the beautiful thing. And if you forget everything else about Nehemiah, let me tell you, just remember this thing. That no matter what it is, whether it's this plan, whether it's your own life, whether it's your own struggles that you're going through right now, here's what you need to know. God loves to use rubble for his glory and to further his kingdom. 
God specializes in using rubbish to point to him. He's incredible at it. It's what God does. It's what he specializes in. And if you're feeling right now like you are rubbish or you are rubble, then you are in the right place for God to move through you in remarkable ways. See, this is one of the great things that we learned during this series is this. It is the faithfulness of God. God is always faithful. God is always faithful. Again and again, we see throughout Nehemiah this focus on the faithfulness of God. Remember this? Mark Roberts gave us this great list from chapter 9. This wasn't that long ago. God's greatness in creation, covenant redemption. Let's just go through it quickly. The people's hardening of their necks. God's grace. The people's idolatry, God's mercies, the people's disobedience, God's discipline and salvation, the people's evil, God's deliverance, the people's stiff necks, God's patience, judgment, and mercy. Is there any more? Is that it? Good. Yeah. It's this constant battle between the faithfulness of God and our imperfections, our being rubble at times. But God's faithfulness keeps coming through. But we have amnesia. Sometimes it's because of prosperity. Sometimes it's because we're in too big of a hurry. Sometimes it's because we're so caught up in our own flawed nature that we just can't remember that God is always faithful. So here's one of the things that Nehemiah teaches us, which is that you cannot, you cannot just wish that you could remember the faithfulness of God. You have to intentionally create space to do that. We've talked about this. You do it through prayer. And by prayer, I don't mean, remember we talked about this, I don't, mean, I don't mean just kind of, you know, a going over a list of what you want. I mean creating space to focus on God's faithfulness. Remember we sent out those texts? I don't know if you know this or not, but we got that idea from Nehemiah. He sent out some texts to some of his folks and in order to help them to remember Right To remember who God is, prayer helps us to do that. Reading in Scripture helps us to do that. And I don't mean just kind of reading a bunch of Scripture so you can check it off. Remember we talked about diving into the story. Dive into the story of Nehemiah and then jump back out and say, well, how does that shape my life today? The Sabbath, we talked about creating space with the Sabbath in order to be able to remember that you are more than what you do. You are first and foremost a child of God, loved by God. We talked about generosity. We didn't actually talk about it that much. It's all over chapter 10. I avoided it uh, in some sense. But we talked about the importance of generosity. Do you want to know whether or not you genuinely believe that everything you have is from God? Then be generous. That's how you'll know. Write a big check to somebody. I'm going to say it again. Give a big tip to somebody when you go out today. If it's painful for you to do it, if you're like, eh then it's probably a good sign that maybe you're not feeling quite as generous. Maybe you don't really believe that this is a gift from God. Okay, so practicing that generosity, creating physical space, a temple back in Jerusalem. Here we would say this space right here. All of those things help to create space for us to genuinely know and remember. It will not just happen. You will not wake up one day and say, wow, God is so faithful. You have to be intentional about creating that space. But of course, perhaps the greatest way, or at least one of the greatest ways that we really remember is because of the community. That's one of the things that's so important is that it takes all of us to be able to genuinely be a part of God's mission. You cannot do this alone. 
I don't know if you guys have noticed this, those of us who have been here throughout most of the series, but Christopher Wright does a nice job of pointing out that in the early parts of the Old Testament, you have people like Moses, Abraham, and they tend to be very charismatic leaders, and that's what the focus is on. But in Nehemiah, Wright says, it begins with the charismatic leader, but then as you keep going on, it becomes clear that is actually what is really important is not the charismatic leader. It is the community. That's why there's list after list after list. Painful reading parts of Nehemiah is. Chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. Almost half of the book is full of a list of names. Right? In chapter 3, it's the people who were trying to rebuild the wall. It's the priests. It's the perfumists. It's the goldsmiths. It's the merchants. It's all these people. And you think, why do we need to know that? In chapter 11, our scripture today, it's actually a group. It's one-tenth. It's a tithe, which is fascinating, of people who are called to go into Jerusalem in order to revivify it, to, to make it come more alive again. Because otherwise, they were just going to have this walled city with no life because there's hardly anybody there. So a tenth of the people then were called to go in and they began to list off all the names. But it's absolutely critical for us to feel the weight of this fact, which is that most of us, oftentimes, our default is going to be focused on one leader. Whether that's at a business or whether that's at a church, whatever it may be, or the government, you're going to focus on one person. And here's what Nehemiah wants to say. No, no, no. You have to understand, in order to be a healthy body, it is going to take all of us. In just a minute, we're going to have our new members come up here. And one of the things that I want them to know is that a part of their coming on board with us is this, that it's not just so that we can teach them something. Oh, no. It is so that they can teach us, so that they can be in partnership with us in mission. And as long as we are waiting, and let me just say it, as long as we think this is up to Jerry, or Jerry will do this, or let's see what Jerry does, we are in trouble. You guys should say amen to that. Thank you. It is only when, when this becomes not what's Jerry going to do, but what are we going to do as we follow the mission of God together? What are we going to do? Which then leads to the very last point that I want to make today, which is the importance of legacy. See, another part of the reason why, and we see it again this week as well, it seems to me, is another reason why they, they bring these names, these extensive, intensive list of names, is because of the fact that we cannot forget who it was who sacrificially gave in so many ways in order to get folks to where we are today. So, so this list here in Jerusalem, it, it wasn't just there so that people would know, oh, that's great. It was so that people who were in a thriving city of Jerusalem years later would realize that they didn't just wake up and all of a sudden, like a pop-up book, Jerusalem had a wall, it had a temple, and there were lots of people in it. And, oh, isn't that cool? It just kind of happened. That's amazing. 
No, no, no. It happened because of this great litany of people who sacrificed again and again and again. That is important for us. I brought this up last week, and I'm thinking about this on the heels of Pete Hudson's passing. Of course, a couple months ago with Chuck Voigt's passing. Here's the reality. I don't want to be morbid here, but I'm going to be anyways, because most of us know that we all die at some point. Right? That's not the one thing you're going to take away from this morning, I hope. We all die at some point. And the fact is, this church has been around for about 35 years. You know what that means? Some of those founders of this church, those people who came within the first several years, many of them who were in their 30s and 40s, because that's usually when you do something as foolhardy as try to start a church. You don't do that in your 70s. Oh, no, no, you do that when you're young and dumb, right? That, 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 those folks are getting older, Right? And one of the things that we have to do is to actually, is to acknowledge the fact that a part of the reason why this group is going to be up here in just a minute in order to say, hey, we want to be a part of what ZPC is doing is because of the work and the sacrifice that those who have gone before have done to get us to where we are today. We cannot forget it. And here's another reason why we cannot forget it. It's because of this which is that in 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years, what this church looks like then is going to depend upon what we decide to do now. You don't just wait to see what happens and say, well, I hope it's okay for the people who come later. Guess what? You who are here now, people who came a generation ago, didn't just say, well, I hope this whole ZPC thing works out. It's just dumb luck. No, 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 my friends. They worked hard in that day so that we could have people who are saying, hey, I know Jesus now and I didn't know him before. Or finally, my understanding of Christ is much different and now I understand that we can actually make a difference and that's because of what those long ago did. See, now we have opportunities every day. Whether you're teaching our small children whether you're leading in some way, when you come in and you worship, when you're generous, when you're out in your neighborhoods and you're talking about, hey man, this is what the Lord is doing here and at ZPC and whatever and wherever else. All those things are laying a foundation for what's coming 15 or 20 years from now. This is something that the writer or that Nehemiah understood. Next week, will be a week of celebration. We'll celebrate with Nehemiah the dedication of the new wall, the rebuilt wall. But I think today is a celebration as well. Because today we get to celebrate that people are joining this particular congregation. And you know what? Let me tell you, let me just give you a quick little update about these people. They are rubbish. I don't know how else to say it. They're rubble. They're imperfect. They just are. I checked. They really are. But they're joining us. We're also rubbish in many ways. We are imperfect. We are flawed. But see, when they come in, we get together. We get to worship. We get to create space. We get to confess. We get to be generous. We get to do all those things together. We get to remember the faithfulness of God. And as we do so, we then get to be a part, not of 
a human-sized plan, but of a God-sized plan, which means the journey will not always be easy, but it will be life-changing. And it will be amazing to continue to see how God uses this rubble in order to further his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so with that, may all of us who are flawed, who are rubble, may all of us remember the faithfulness of God. And may we say, Amen.